they say that you should never meet your heroes as they often only disappoint you. But I've, I've been fortunate enough to meet my special guest, uh, David Cancel, twice now. Um, he's the CEO and co-founder at Drift. He's definitely one of the nicest and most generous people I've ever met. And I'm not going to embarrass him by telling him all the details and etc. But thank you, David, for joining me. I'm sure you'll, your personality will shine through in this episode as well. But thank you very much for taking the time out to join me and welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast, brother. It's been, a, it's been a long time. We've known each other and we've met. It's been awesome. So I'm excited to do this podcast together. Oh, thank you. I really do appreciate it. And I'm, I'm really excited to, well, as I said, I, I love Drift. I love everything about it. It's, um, and I'm really excited just to even dig into a bit more about Drift, a bit more about UDC, clearly, but also really just to dig in more around the culture at Drift, talent yep. at Drift. I'm keen to really talk about hiring, remote working, diversity and inclusion and something which I'm really interested in is conversational spaces which mm-hmm. I think I messaged to you the other day I said I'm really keen to know what conversational spaces is but mm-hmm. so for those that don't know you maybe because I said we're in the recruitment world so maybe they don't know you it'd be great if you could even just share a wee bit about you sure. drift and just a wee bit of background at the end of your journey to drift that'd be great sure so um Long history, don't know where to start. So I am, you know, five-time entrepreneur. Um, I've started five companies, that is, and uh, Drift is the fifth company now. I always say that, you know, people people like to talk about um, being an entrepreneur, you know, starting companies and doing those kind of things with me and kind of bounce ideas off me. But I always say, like, when I grew up, entrepreneur was like a dirty word. Entrepreneur meant, you know, you couldn't get a job. It meant loser, couldn't get a job. And so, like, I never used the word entrepreneur until recent history, you know, it was only in, you know, in the last, you know, 10, 15 years that there's been this kind of like um, obsession or kind of glamorization of entrepreneurism. And so like uh, before that, it was just I, I like making something from nothing. Uh, so I've started these companies all in the Internet, all in marketing and sales related places. And, um, and luckily, all of them except Drift have been acquired and Drift, we started with a mission of not wanting to be acquired, trying to build something, a standalone company, because we thought, not because of us, but because we thought the problem that we're trying to solve is such a massive problem that it could support, you know, a long lasting company. And we, we at Drift, basically, our whole reason for being was that we be- is that we believe that we're going from a world where it, largely in selling things online, highly considered purchases, so not your average transactional purchase, which we all do every day, that we're moving from a world from where the company had all the power and the company could dictate the sales process and the company could sell to you when you want to a world where the buyer, all of us have the power. And that's being fueled because of a number of reasons, but largely because there's so many alternatives in every single category emerging quicker and faster each and every day. And so like we think the power is moving to the buyer. That's good news. And we're trying to make that buying experience look a lot like our buying experience when we buy things for our personal lives. So we're trying to do that for business. And so that's the reason we exist. It's a huge mission and it's uh, it's something that we enjoy working on every day. Great. And, as, and I, th- I want to give a bit of context, I think, for mm-hmm. what we're about to talk about, because I know you wouldn't say it yourself, but, and this is why I'm excited to speak to you about this. There's a thing called, and they're quite well known in, in most spaces, something called the Comparably Awards, which mm-hmm. are, I think of them right, they're kind of company ratings by the employees themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's some huge kind of traditional well-known companies who are featured in these things all the time, the Facebooks, Googles, Microsoft, LinkedIn. But mm-hmm. Drift, what, Drift just only, just only, David, uh, won 12 awards last year. 
And I just want to put my context because, as I said, it's related to the topics I want to talk about. But Drift won Best Company for Diversity, Best Company for Women, Best Company for Culture, Best Work-Life Balance, Best Leadership, Best CEO, and a huge congrats on that one, but Best CEO for Women and Best CEO for Diversity. As the CEO and co-founder of Drift, how does that actually make you feel when you see feedback like that mm-hmm. from your own people or your own employees at Drift? Well, on one end, I think it's uh, it's the thing that I'm most proud of in terms of what we've done at Drift, not because it has anything to do with me or my co-founder or the leadership, but because it's a representation of the team that we have, right? The team has done that. Mm-hmm. The team has voted that, but the team has created that, right? I'm only one person. Elias is my co-founder. There's only two of us who started the company. Like we, the, the you know, we're 400 and I don't know. 50 people now. So it's like, it is really those 448 people who have created this culture and this environment. So, so I'm proud of it. And on the other end, you know, I, I, I don't like compliments much and I always, you know, I'm my harshest critic. And so I think to myself of all the giant gaps that I have personally, uh, that I'm trying to work on each day. And I do try to work on them each day, but they're, they're, you know, the older you get, the bigger the gaps you see in yourself. Right. And so the younger you are, the, the, the less gaps you see and you're invincible. And so as I get older each and every day and every year, uh, I see the gaps, the gaps keep getting bigger. And so I keep working harder to try to try to try to fill some of those gaps. And what, I mean, without digging into it or being, because I'm sure maybe there's some of them are personal, but what are those mm-hmm. kind of gaps to you? What, oh, so what many. You- I mean, I'm incredibly lazy, which people laugh at because <laughs> they see my work ethic. I'm an incredibly lazy person. Um, you know, I, when I am passionate about something, when I'm being driven, you know, around something, there's something that I want to learn or, you know, the, then I become, you know, superhuman in terms of the, the amount that I'll work on it, the amount that I think about it, you know, kind of like, it'll be hard to outwork me when I'm passionate about something, but naturally I'm lazy, you know, I'm lazy. I'm like the, you know, if you ever see the lion in the, in the, uh, in the Sahara, they sleep all day. And then, you know, for one minute, they might like jump and pounce and whatever. I'm probably more like that. And, uh, and, you know, but most of the time I'm, I'm pretty lazy. And so like, so that's one of them. I think, you know, we all, um, we all have our different biases and mistakes that we make uh, each day. I have a large set of those for sure. I'm not, the, I don't have the highest EQ. And so I work on that all the time. I'm, you know, naturally my personality type is very, um, if people understand Star Trek references, then Spock-like is what I use, or, you know, like, you know, someone who's very logical, very rational, and it's hard for me to emotionally connect sometimes with people. And so, you know, to do the job that I do, to do this that we're doing right now, it actually takes a lot of work for me. You know, I'm, su- I'm naturally super introverted and I can naturally, you know, just sit by myself, read all day, not talk to anyone for weeks on end. In some ways I was built for the pandemic, right? I can be alone forever, but, but, you know, that's not my job. I have to be out there. I have to be, I have to interact with people. I have to be compassionate and those things are hard for me. And so I work at them every day. And how do you, I mean, I, I, I know Elias, but I don't know him that well, but how do you bounce off each other? Are you quite complimentary mm. that way then? Yeah, we are. So Elias is my co-founder. And uh, we've worked together now for probably 11 years. And uh, Elias is my, could not, you know, I tell people this and they don't really understand until they see the two of us for a little while. And, and people will often say, you are the two most opposite people that I've ever met. They're like, I've not met, you know, a bigger odd couple than you two, right? Like you could not be uh, more, uh, more opposite. And, you know, I'm the, like I said, the, the person who can be by themselves, introverted, quiet, 
And um, I have to process things. I have to sleep on things. I'm a processor and synthesize ideas and stuff like that. Meaning that, you know, I can't react usually to things unless I've thought about them for a long time on the, on the go. I have to think about them for a bit. Elias is the exact opposite. He's the most extroverted person you've ever met. He can talk to anyone in the world. He loves, he cannot, he does not process things by uh, sitting alone, sitting and having quiet space and having time. He processes by talking out loud. And so he may be talking himself, not you, the whole time, although it looks like he's talking to you, but he's processing by, by talking, by interacting. And, and he's the most emotionally, he's got the highest EQ you could imagine. And so we're complete opposites. And so it works really well because we have a shared set of values. But, um, but you know, because we have that shared set of values, we can understand each other. And both of us, because we're so extreme at our personality types, you know, over time, the thing that we both need to work on is he needs to become a little bit more, you know, slow things down a little bit more towards my side of the spectrum. And I need to be a little bit more towards his side of the spectrum. And so we learn each from each other because of that. I've just remembered that. I just had a flashback when you were talking about him there. I remember when I went to the Hypergrowth event in Boston, it was the kind of running joke about letting him on stage. I've just had a, a flashback <laughs> that it was almost like, I know it was, probably tongue-in-cheek maybe it wasn't but I just remember the joke around right we're letting them out but don't you it's almost a joke around but just watch what you say type yeah. stuff it was it was, it was, it was oh really my goodness funny. It was yeah yeah funny. yeah he has to watch what he says he's the type <laughs> of guy you know people are like amazed by it all the time because but I don't notice it anymore that you will go anywhere in the world you can plop them anywhere in the world you'll go in a restaurant you'll be sitting down eating five minutes later Elias is gone Right. Everyone around the table is wondering, like, where is he? I already know what he's doing. He's by, you know, within five minutes, he's met the chef. He's in the back of the kitchen. He's talking to them. They're brothers now. They're going to go kiteboarding together. Uh, They came from the same place. Like, it's like the most when you see it, you're like, what in the world is happening? And uh, and so but I'm so used to it. So he can befriend (laughs) and and actually build these emotional connections like that over, you know, and uh, in a way that I've never seen anyone do. It is superhuman. Mm-hmm. Definitely a bit more like yourself. I'm definitely a bit more, yeah, I'm more introverted myself in terms of I'm quite happy to be doing things like this or I'm quite yeah. happy to stand up on the stage and talk, but mm-hmm. put me in a room and I'm almost a bit actually like the hyper growth events. At the end of the night, I'm not one, unless I'm there with my five friends, I'm not mm-hmm. one to probably run about and start going, oh, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. But it was great actually because all the people at hyper growth were really good with me. They came up and said, oh, how are you? Because I think they knew I was there yeah, myself. Yeah. So it was quite good. They were all coming up to me after a few drinks, of course. So I think they were a bit Yeah, cold. yeah, yeah. You're going to lose it Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> um, me, I'd rather go home. I'd rather go to yeah, yeah. So there was a post um, I saw that you announced in, I think it was maybe three, four weeks ago now, around about Drift becoming a digital first company. And mm-hmm. always, I don't mean to even joke, I just mean it always it says with conversational spaces. But <laughs> what, over the last 12 months, what, what's kind of been that? What's that looked like for yourself, Drift, or the, your employees? And I suppose what's led you to take that decision to become a digital first company and before you answer I was going to say that you mentioned you didn't want to do the hybrid option of Mm -hmm. uh, and what I guess what you mean by that is uh, an office environment and remote and almost to have this kind of hybrid why Mm I say again I'd love to know what led you to that decision or that announcement sure so the um, a lot of things right so you know one I would say for a background for everyone listening or watching like you know, there's three reasons we started Drift. And, you know, one of those reasons was that we wanted to create, at least and I wanted to create this equitable environment, this environment, you know, where uh, there's an amazing uh, amount of diversity that, but really, you know, 
I can go on and on with diversity and um, equity, which are different, but really that we create this equitable environment, meaning that no matter what someone's background, no matter what their capabilities, no matter what, you know, uh, where they came from, that they have an even shot, that it is level playing field for everyone, right? And that's going to take a long time. That's not an easy thing. In some way, you know, like diversity is an important first step, but like that's an easier thing for companies to meet than really this equitable situation because you can you can diversify a workforce by hiring lots of people into junior roles. It doesn't mean that it's an equitable workforce. It doesn't mean that those people still have the same opportunity to rise to the highest levels as everyone else. So that's a background for, for Mm -hmm. my kind of thought process. But when I was thinking about, you know, the other background is Elias and I had worked together. The first time we worked together was a company that I started called Lookery. He was not a co-founder, but he, he joined that company and worked for me. And in that company, we were a remote only company long time ago, 2007, you know, and, uh, and then ultimately became a hybrid company where half the workforce was fully stayed fully remote because they were all over the world. And then uh, half of us ended up being in Boston. And so we opened a local office. And what I saw through that experience was that, that it, it did create an, an inequitable environment. Because naturally, what's going to happen when you have people in an office and people outside of an office who cannot participate is that they're going to miss from the social bonds that get uh, created. They're going to miss from hallway conversations. They're going to miss, you know, conversations that may happen, you know, over lunch or drinks or what have Mm -hmm. you. And all of a sudden, especially if leadership or some portion of the leadership is in that office, you're naturally, you're going to have a bias, right? For people, the familiarity bias, where people who are around you all the time, you're probably going to think about them more when it comes to promotion or opportunities than that person who's halfway around the world, right? No matter what the, what, what work capacity they have or performance, it's just a natural thing. It's a human thing. And so, you know, given that experience, I didn't want to reproduce that. And so when we, when the pandemic started, um, you know, I was very kind of vocal to the company internally that from the very beginning in March that, you know, we had uh, crossed, you know, we had, uh, excuse me there, my video went out there, my camera, my nice camera overheated. I apologize. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to turn on my other video. That's good. It won't be as good. Uh, But, you know, we had crossed this one, one way door, meaning that we weren't going to go back to the way that things were before because it was a mass. I believed at the time that it was this mass trauma we were going through. I didn't know anything at the, I still don't know anything, but I just knew it was like a mass traumatic event. And if you look at any traumas that we have gone through in, in, you know, local countries or nations or nothing really at this global scale, but in any of those traumas, like people just don't unwind. People just don't go back to the way that things were before like that automatically. And that's, I felt like people on the team had that desire and kept asking like, when are things, when would when, when do we go back? When is it the same as before? And I, my opinion from the beginning was like, it's never going to be the same. I don't know what it's going to be, but it has to be different. And, um, and so I had been thinking uh, so, 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 so I spent so much time on this idea of like, what are we going to do? Are we going to go back to offices or not? And then finally, you know, thought that people had to get on with their lives. People had to make decisions. People were wanted to know where they would live, you know, when we would go back, you know, where we would go back and all these kind of questions. And so I thought that the important thing for the team was to have some clarity around it. And, you know, again, I didn't want to have this hybrid approach and I didn't and I wanted to have this equitable approach, which is the most important thing. One of the reasons we started the company. And we really came up with this idea of being digital first, right? Like that everyone would be on a level playing field, that we will all work 
remotely this way, you know, uh, like the way that we were talking now, but that we could preserve some spaces, our existing footprint, and then over time expand them uh, to create what we call conversational spaces, spaces where we, when it's safe to do so, and it's not yet, that we can come together and, you know, have a collaboration, in-person collaboration. We could collaborate with a partner. We could collaborate with the community. You know, we can have an event. We can do things like that. But that they weren't going to be for solo work because we wanted we want to avoid that disparity. But really a place that it is for pure collaboration. And we will change. And we are in the middle of changing the footprint of the office to be that way. No one will have a, all the desks are gone. It will not be desks. It will be really meeting spaces where people can collaborate and that also filming you know we'll have filming studios because part of collaboration might be one person filming doing a live stream for you know hundreds tens thousands of people that that is part of collaboration i mean it's great as i said I'd, when you talked about the examples of even just one person a manager i'm just taking a mm-hmm. basic example of a manager but in the office if it was the old way mm-hmm. It seems weird talking about the old way, like, <laughs> but but the yeah. old the old way when everybody's in the office. But as you said, I often because I, I, whilst I got it, I wasn't actually hundred percent sure where you're where you were coming from. But then when I, when you were talking there, when you were talking about as you said the bias that if mm-hmm. if it was just me as a manager and I had a few members of staff here, but a few were twenty miles away and they weren't here, there is things that just go on naturally where. It can bias you positively or negatively. Maybe you get sick of the person exactly. with you. But so I, I hadn't actually thought it through. I knew you were doing it, but I actually hadn't thought through the mechanics. I suppose of w- w- why you got got to that decision, as you said, and favoritism and things like that. So it yeah. makes it makes perfect sense. So do you do you think? And again, I suppose you can only base on what you know just now. But do you think there'll ever be a time where you will go back? But again, is, or is that just something you just need? To, it plays out itself. Yeah, you know, I think about it a lot still, even though we made this decision. I don't I don't know if we ever go back. I don't know if, you know, this decision that we made to go digital first now becomes a one-way door, you know, another one-way mm-hmm. door because, you know, because of that, we've changed the way that we hire and we've really put up, you know, the focus on performance. We've given the the option and the power to all of our leaders who do the hiring, the hiring managers really, to decide where in the world they wanna hire people. So now all of a sudden we have people, we are hiring people all over um, all over the world now. And so like, I don't know how you unwind that. Once the genie's mm-hmm. out of the box, like I don't know yeah. how we go back. So in some ways I don't, I don't think so. And then I also think from, from, you know, I try to be optimistic, but you know, when I talk to my friends who are trying to make the same decisions in their company, I'm like, when do you think that you can you know, people are going to be affected by this in all different ways, right? We don't know the future, but they're going to be affected and they've gone through this trauma. And and from a safety standpoint and mental uh, health standpoint, when do you think we will be ready to mandate to say, Robert, you must come into the office today, no matter how yep. you feel? I don't know the answer. I think it's going mm-hmm. to take a long time because if I look at history and I, I study history, I try to study history a lot. You look at all the traumas, right, that we've gone through, whether it was various wars, whether it was various, uh, you know, um, outbreaks like plagues and uh, outbreaks. And those people were never the same that were affected. It wasn't like they just it's a rubber band. We just snap back. Mm-hmm. Right. Even when, you know, like in the U.S., you know, when we went through the depression in the in the 20s, like, you know, we many of us grew up and there was great grandparents or grandparents who had gone through it. And you would see in those populations, no matter how much money they had later on, no matter how much access that they had to food unlimited, they were never the same. 
right? Mm -hmm. They went through a trauma, right? And we have gone through a global trauma for something that is invisible that we cannot put our hands on and we will never know when it is fully gone or not. So I don't know how you unwind that. You know, I don't mean to sound depressing. I, I think no, there's no, an but, exciting future ahead, but like, but it's the reality of what we're doing. And would you, because you were talking about hiring people across the world at the moment, for example, are you looking at hiring people close to an existing office or so for example, before we come on, we were talking about mm-hmm. offices in Sydney, I think you said, and clearly there's offices in London. Um, but would you hire someone in a different country completely to that? Or is it, they've got to be at least reasonably close just in case, as you said, we have to unwind it at some point in the future or just curious. Yeah. The, so what we've done is we've put that hand, I didn't want to make those decisions. I wanted mm. that, those decisions to be made by the hiring leaders. I don't make any of those decisions. So like it might be a VP, it might be a director level, it might be a manager level. Like if they're the hiring manager, it's up to them to decide where they want to hire. The only, you know, the only guidance I've given is like, you know, one, which we talked about, which is, you know, make sure that, that we create this even playing field. Right. And that, and then two, if you ever have desires, like in the case of, you know, our BDR team or the support team, that's a usually young workforce. It might be their first job. Right. There are Mm -hmm. some managers who have voiced within the company that they would like the ability to, to bring them together, not to work, but like to train them or to be, you know, work out of uh, together out of collaboration space to like collaborate on ideas. And I said, well, if you want to do that, if you want to preserve the ability to do that, then you're probably going to want to hire people from the same area. Because once you hire someone that is not outside, who's outside of that area, I believe you lose that privilege to, be, to do something like that. Because now, now it's inequitable. That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. So we talked about, you, talked, you touched on culture there actually just um, a little bit as well. And even from afar, someone who's been afar, I've bought, I've bought into your culture, I suppose. I mean, I wouldn't be going to your events and all over the world if I, if I didn't. But I think you've built you, the team, all the co- people, the, the company have built a special culture at Drift. And as I said, I can see that from afar. And yeah. even just saying super engaged employees and social, talking about what you are what you believe in at Drift and what you're trying to achieve. And even your the kickoff, I think you were doing a kickoff event, I think maybe it was mm-hmm. last week. Yeah. And everybody's on social. I can see it. It's like almost like the old LinkedIn takeovers back to the old LinkedIn takeover days. But, but, yeah. but it's great to see that. But again, going back to the digital first thing, how do you? What challenges do you think you're going to face in trying to retain that culture? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we've been thinking about as we made this decision or spent the time thinking about this decision before we made it on digital first. Like one of the biggest things that that I was trying to think through and work through is like, well, how do we? How do we preserve the rituals? Part of part of what's made our culture kind of special is that, or for us, at least for our version, is that, you know, we had these certain rituals that were important that we invested in from the very beginning. We had a set of leadership principles that we defined from the very mm-hmm. beginning. We train, we, we, we promote on those. We, you know, we goal against those as well. Uh, and so like, how do we preserve those? What is our new set of rituals that we're going to have in this world? And so, you know, I took a page out of something that we did a, a long time ago when I was at HubSpot, which was, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to codify some of this stuff in, uh, in what they call the cultural culture code, which is a, a presentation, a deck that you can view. And we based mm-hmm. that work on the work of uh, Reed Hastings at Netflix, who, re- who you know, released a culture deck uh, probably 
10, 12 years ago now, uh, that became very famous and infamous. And, uh, and we studied that when I was at that company and interviewed a lot of people that were involved in that, including Patty McCord, who used to run a people there and really developed our own version of that there. So we've taken that same page and lots of people have done this now. And during this time, when we announced this, part of the announcing of Digital First was we created the first version, we codified the first version of you know, our own culture, uh, culture deck, you know, that, that really talks about, and in my opinion, you know, one of the things I say in kind of in the second or third slide is like, you know, this, this is not only about like the things that we celebrate as a culture and the rituals we have and the values that we celebrate, but it's the things that we will not, to- uh, you know, that, that we won't tolerate. And so like, because mm-hmm. I think that's what really defines the culture to me, right? It's like, it's not the things that you espouse uh, that you want. It's not the aspirational things. It's the, you know, at the moment that you're, you know, have to make a tough decision. The moment that your star performer, right, no matter what they do, crosses a value that you hold dear, that you say you hold dear as a company, what are you going to do? Do you turn your, do you turn your, do you turn your head away? Do you look Mm -hmm. away from that? If you do, then that becomes, then you set a new norm for the culture. And now your values that you espouse and what you're trying to create in those principles become hollow. uh, And everybody knows that. And so like, that's really what defines it. It's like really what won't you tolerate really defines um, your culture. What does it, so even when you're hired, you've hired, I mean, I had, I can't remember who I spoke to, maybe it's just been shared because you've been a very open and public company mm-hmm. about what he's doing, mm-hmm. the classic document, the journey almost to an extent. But yep. in terms of when you're hiring new people now, what how does their first week look like different to mm-hmm. what would have looked like previously because again i was only in the boston office for whatever 30 minutes one day <laughs> and there was a it's an intangible vibe i mean people were super helpful I had mark killens try to grab me for to record videos and i was like whoa <laughs> on, mark? I'm, i've just been at an event i'm tired here uh, so um but you could just tell it was super positive very happy and it's almost i can imagine week one in that environment is clearly very different to mm-hmm doing this remotely and especially mm-hmm. when you've never met someone i think i even remember i'll get the gentleman's name that might have been todd barnett or yeah, barnett, todd. I but yeah, i think yeah. i remember reading an article last year where you said you tired them without even ever meeting them yes 100 it's, it's almost so how does how do you think the first week out drift is very different or how do you try and close that gap because mm-hmm. it must be very different to what it was yeah before. It, it's funny you know because um well one i will say that we spent a lot of time, you know, when we were less than 50 people as a company, a lot, myself and Elias, as well as other people, but really the two of us, one defining these leadership principles that I mentioned, and they're available on our website, uh, leadership mm-hmm. principles, and so they're public. Um, they not only defining them, but training them, creating videos on them, creating training, creating content around that. We also spent a lot of time at that size, really defining a really end-to-end onboarding process for, for everyone who joins the company, not just um, not just in certain groups, and then certain groups might have longer onboarding. So really 
created, you know, a, you know, and of course, someone like Mark Killens, you know, uh, who's an amazing teacher, you know, uh, was super involved in this as well, and still is, right? We created, you know, external certifications in conversational marketing, conversational sales, virtual events that our own people take as well. And so like, those started internally before they became external things. And so like, we created all this, we created curriculum, basically, like, if you think about it from a school standpoint, and we did that really early when it didn't, it didn't seem like it would make sense to do it. Then um, and then we continue to refine it, right? Because it's never finished, it's never complete. And so we had that. And so the moment that we went rem uh, remote because of the pandemic, we leaned on that and we had that structure and we had the muscle memory of going through that process. Now it was over Zoom or, or some other technology uh, versus in person. So you lose something, but you, we had the structure, we had the way to measure, you know, whether we would be successful in onboarding or not. But even when we announced the digital first thing, you know, almost 11 months after going remote, you know, a lot of our managers were like, were asking me, how are we going to hire? How will we train? How will we onboard? And my answer to them is, we've onboarded and trained 138 people since the beginning of the pandemic, 138, <laughs> wow. right? Uh, all on your team, right? And so it was this like, you know, dissonance that they had of just like, remember a lot of, you know, most people were thinking, when are we going to go back to normal? This is temporary. And it's like, you've been doing this and you've been doing it successfully and we can measure it. We see the performance. Todd, who you mentioned, who's our CRO, we hired totally remotely. Still, none of us have met him. He's never been to an office, right? He has hired now five VPs that work for him, entire organizations. They've hired entire teams. We've never, I've never met any of them. I've never seen them. I've never, they've never seen an office. They've never met another person at Drift in person. And, uh, and they are incredibly successful. I didn't even, even though I've had this experience in the past, I wasn't sure that something at that level could happen until I witnessed it with my own eyes. So did you say it was 138 then just in the last? Well, yeah, since March. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> it's, crazy. it's incredible, as you said. Uh, I mean, that's crazy because, I mean, for some reason I had written down here, again, probably reading an old article from May when it was talking about 300 plus employees. And I'm thinking... No, we're like 450 Because really, then at the beginning when you spoke, you said 450, you said 450. Yeah. I'm like... I think we have yeah, to hire... I'm keen to know. But... <laughs> I think we have to hire... I have to, I was say... We have to hire over 150 people in the in the next six months at Drift. It's crazy. So what does... I suppose... <laughs> That's crazy. Because I was going to say, what does your talent team look like? Because like, I think I saw a new, I've written down here, Vice President of Talent Acquisition, Bruce. I've not got his name written down. But what yeah. does your talent team look like then to cope yeah. with that, I suppose? Or to, <laughs> manage, cope with that, to manage that? Yeah, we constantly evolve. <laughs> we have a chief people officer, Dina Upton, who's amazing. I did a podcast with her recently uh, that I got a lot of uh, positive feedback on, mostly because of Dina. Okay. Uh, so that's on, on Seeking Wisdom. <laughs> and then um, she's amazing. And she, her team uh, continues to grow. We have a set of recruiters. We, we mostly deal in-house recruiting. So like we have, I want to say somewhere around 10 recruiters. It might be more. I might be getting that wrong. So in-house recruiters. And then we have, we just hired a VP of talent uh, who just joined Dina's team. Uh, his name is Bruce. He just started maybe three weeks ago or four weeks ago now. Uh, and so, and then there's various directors and managers and what have you in that team. And so like, we spend a lot of time there, not only from the traditional things that you think about, but some of the stuff that you touched upon before that's been, you know, uh, super important for us as a company. We have another team within PR, within the PR team under Lacey, uh, who focuses on employee engagement. 
And that's like, how do we, how do we communicate? How do we teach internally? You know, how do we get people to engage with the stuff that we're creating? How do they, we even make them aware of it? And we have simple things from, you know, internal employee newsletters, you know, like that we do, we have one that goes out every week. uh, That's, you know, has everything from things you shouldn't miss to like photos of people's dogs that week to like birthdays to like celebrations. So like everything in between and uh, anniversaries coming up birthday, you know, everything you can imagine uh, in there. And it's, it's part of, again, I learned that that was something that someone on my team at HubSpot created internally. It used to be called the win there. It probably still is. And it would come out every Friday. And it was something that it was like a cultural artifact that I saw that really connected the team as we started to grow. Because all of a sudden you, you could know, oh, it's Robert's having an anniversary this week. Oh, look, check out Robert's dog or check out, you know, uh, Janet's, you know, birthday or something like that. Like you just kept people together. It was a simple newsletter, but there was someone who who was super um, amazing at writing it and putting it together. And it was like this and it was a. Uh, an organic thing, a bottoms up thing that they decided to do internally. And we have something just like it in, uh, at Drift that was created, it's called Inside Drift that, um, that you know, is organic. It's not coming, it's not me sending an email. I send lots of emails, but it's not me compiling that. It's not someone else in leadership. It's mm. someone uh, within the team doing that. And do you still do the, maybe it's remotely clearly, but show and tells and things like that to keep the team? Yeah. Yeah, Together, you know, I mean, Richard, one of our of what's happening within different departments. Yeah, so show and tell is a is a massive, you know, uh, ritual for us. It happens every week on Fridays, and luckily, Matt Pilotti, who really is the host of that and really the genius behind it, um, he and one of our early drifters and someone we worked with at HubSpot as well. But he he is a show host like no other, right? He's got that thing. That thing is dialed. It's organic. Again, it's not top down. Uh, no one. No one in the management team is allowed to present at that thing or have anything to do with it. The team's self-organized. It is tightly run production. It is like a game show that happens every week. And it's the most fun thing that we do. And it was already working that way because we had multiple offices. And so we had to communicate. We had to broadcast it live across Mm -hmm. Zoom. Um, back before the pandemic. So it was, it was made for this thing and they have ways to interact with people and the people chat in and there's prizes and all, there's, there is that energy. You know, you mentioned one thing, one thing that is missing that we haven't figured out how to do, which is, you know, drift from the very beginning. A lot of people would say like it was intoxicating coming to our office because there was like, there was an energy that was alive, right? There was obviously there was music and things happening, people running around and just like mm-hmm. so much stuff happening, filming over here and going on. And it was just like, People were like, uh, were like, you know, numb when they would come in. They'd just be like, "What? What's going on? Like, I've never seen this. What is this? Is this a nightclub? Is this a workplace? Is this like what? What is going on here?" And so it had that kind of energy. It felt almost like a, you know, what I would imagine like a, a filming when you watch those TV shows or movies about filming a TV show or a movie or something like that. It had that kind of maker energy. And so like that part, it's hard to reproduce. We don't know how we will reproduce that yet. I will tell you, we were, we have been performing better during the pandemic individually and collectively than we did before. So something's working, but, you know, we're always looking for ways mm-hmm. to kind of re- recreate that. No, I mean, I have to say, but I mean, I have mentioned that the intangible feeling mm-hmm. when I did walk in the office, it was, uh, it's, it's just even, I'm going to, the silly is not what I mean, you know what I mean? But it's seeing the graffiti and stuff. I don't know that's to do with a lot of your background. It's just things like that. When you go to the events yeah. that, 
and I know it's different and it's meant to be different, but it does. I don't know. It just uh, I can't remember if it was on the left doors or when I came in. I can't remember. I can't exactly remember. It was on the walls, yeah. but yeah. it was just it was very different. Um, and as I said, uh, um, I, I got on with a couple of and Matt. I've just seen Matt on something recently, and his beard was looking very impressive. <laughs> very long, say, very long, you know, huh? Unless he's trying. Unless it's a no, yeah. Because I, I, I'd met Matt a couple of years ago, fortunately, and yeah. to help with, I think it was drift email at the time. Yeah. It was lunch. I think he was involved in, mm-hmm. um, and I was testing it, but. It's amazing. You know, the, going a hell of a lot since, since I the last one. <laughs> uh, it's so long. I look at it all the time. I wish I could grow a beard that long. But, you know, Drift, the, the office to me is like what, what we had there was almost the, I grew up in New York City. And so, and I live in Boston now. And one of the things that I would get in trouble all the time for when I moved to Boston was like, people would ask me and they'd be like, how do you compare this city to, what do you think of Boston as a city versus New York? And my immediate answer, I didn't mean this in a negative way, was like, Boston's not a city. And they'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this is, I mean, this is amazing. You know, I said the same thing about San Francisco. San Francisco to me is not a city. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, like, it's amazing. It's like a a network of towns and, you know, villages and locations. And people are always moving from different towns and stuff like that. It's like a network more. uh, and, And the heart of either of those cities is not, does not feel like a city to me. Growing up in New York, and if you go to New York and you go to London and Paris and all these amazing Berlin cities around the world, they have their own energy. People are not constantly moving out. It's it's has its own energy. And that's what we had in the office. Like in New York to me would be like, it is alive all the time, right? It's just alive. Part of that is because it's so hard to leave. Unlike Boston, like Boston, I can like leave and go places easily. New York is so hard to actually leave the city that it has its own energy. And there's so many people with so many varied interests interest that it has its own like kinetic energy. We had that in the office. And so like that, that's the part that, that we're missing. I, I totally agree. Um, I'd be remiss of me, I suppose, before I move on to another topic, though, is a recruitment, working in a recruitment company. What is yeah. your view on, I suppose, recruitment companies? Because I know you've got a lot of internal people, but what's important to you or your company if you were looking to work with a recruiter? Hopefully you won't get about 20 recruiters now getting in touch <laughs> with you after this, but, but what, 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 what is important to Drift, though, if you were like, speaking to three different recruitment companies and they were saying different things to you? What do you value or what's, more, what's important to you? Well, I would tell everyone uh, who's listening to speak to Dina, Dina Upton, not me, because <laughs> I do no zero. I'm in charge of zero recruiting. And so I've designed it that way. I don't recruit anybody. Um, the, <laughs> so what's important to me is, and we have worked with lots of external recruiters, uh, lots of them, early days, internal. Some of them came, worked for us in the office, you know, at the time. Uh, I'm thinking of a a recruiter named Tom, who was amazing, who helped us out in the early days. He helped us in many companies. Uh, and, you know, so we will work with people, but we have our own way of, of working. And so like, you know, the way that we like to recruit is we like to spend a lot of time. We don't like to sift through a lot of things. We like to spend a lot of time on the hunt. And so like, we are not a, uh, even though I'm a processor, we don't process a lot of we get a lot of inbound, but it's not really processing a lot of candidates. We really spend a lot of time trying to be deliberate on what we're trying to find, what experiences are important to us, where we're trying to look for them. And we go out proactively. A lot of this started from Elias, my co-founder, because he's the world's best, you know, not recruiting, re- non-recruiter recruiter. Like he can recruit anyone. Right. And so like, mm-hmm. because he's, because we're willing to go out because the best candidates that we found in any role are not looking. 
you know, they're passive. They're, they're, they have a million options, right? They have a wealth of options. And so we usually have to go outside and we have to like convince them to even talk to us. They won't even talk to us on a, from an interview standpoint as the first meeting, we have to get to know them. We have to like, you know, build a relationship. Then eventually, you know, like if things work out, like we can get into like, you know, the possibility of recruiting them now. And often they're not ready now. And we're, that's okay with us. We will build a relationship. And a lot of people like that, we recruited a year, two years, three years uh, later, you know, in there. And so I remember since mm-hmm. we're talking about one of the hypergrowths, like, you know, I met this amazing uh individual who had his own company and, and really was like knew everyone in the sales world in London and his name, first in Dublin and then in London at two different events. His name is James Ski. And uh, that was two years ago, you know, something like that. Now he just joined the drift team a month ago. Right. That's a, you know, we, we play, I like to play the long mm. game right on this, on building relationships. And so recruiters who can work like that, um, you know, are perfect for us. Uh, I mean, off the top of my head, I can't remember who the, their names, but I've seen a couple of the more senior hires probably because it's probably been more on the press, but in terms of the companies and positions and their backgrounds that they've come from, and there's some impressive talent and in, in amongst um, those people for sure. Um, I want to, I mean, I'm conscious of time as well, but I wanted to move on to talk about diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, because I mean, I know yourself and Elias come from kind of Latino backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I make correct me if I'm wrong because I've wrote this down. But from yourself, it's a mixture of Ecuadorian Puerto Rico, I think. Yes, that might be right. Hopefully, yeah, yeah you <laughs> Hopefully got I've it. said it right. I'm terrible at saying South American countries. Um, <laughs> but I know then you went to the Bronx and Queens, and that's where you kind of grew up. And Elias is from a Nicaraguan background. Yeah. Um, and I know you've worked together, as you said, maybe in. Was it five companies? I've got three written down. Uh, three uh, companies three that you've companies. together, or th- three. Mm-hmm. But again, I suppose shaping what you're doing right now in Drift, I suppose, which is the company I would probably know you more from. I know you were mm-hmm. in HubSpot before that, but how how is your how? I suppose the challenges. What challenges did you face along the way as someone coming from a Latino background? Whether you want to get into the tech space at the age of twelve or thirteen when you can't speak English, but how what, what challenges did you face? Do you think that's actually shaped what you're doing now at Drift and that yeah. space? I think you know again, Elias and I come from Elias. You know, I was born here. I was born in the U.S., but my parents both emigrated here. The, I only spoke uh, Spanish at home. I had to teach myself how to speak English because uh, there weren't, you know, at least in school back then, there, in my schools, there was no such thing as English as a second language or people doing that for you. So I had to, I had to learn it on my own, mostly by watching TV and movies. Elias, on the other hand, grew up in Nicaragua and came here in his teenage years. You know, I think it was seventh grade or, or mm-hmm. something like that, seventh, eighth grade, he came here. And so like, so he brings that background. Uh, you know, I will say that, um, and he, you know, grew up in Latino communities. And when he moved here, he lived in Tampa and he was again in the Latino community. So he has that context. I, on the other hand, was, you know, born in, in the U.S., but I only grew up in neighborhoods and I only worked in places where I was the only one, you know, who looked like me. I never I mean, entirely grown up. I didn't grow up with anyone who looked like who was had my background or my skin color or anything. So I was always the you know, the other, right? Like, and I still am in Boston, it's still as mm-hmm. true, but like, um, especially in the neighborhoods that, that I've lived in. But, you know, that I think has built some kind of trait in me where like, I don't, I wouldn't even think about 
about, you know, my background, like, I, because I couldn't afford to, I couldn't think about it. I got, you know, I think I would be crippled if I thought about like, well, I'm the only one, like, what, you know, like I didn't even have uh, that ability to do so. So I created some shields probably because of that. Elias, again, is more empathetic. You know, he's come from those communities. He's gone from a, a world where he's used to having, you know, people uh, that look like him around him or diversity around him to a world where there was very mm -hmm. few. So he sees that contrast where I came from a world of like, I never saw it. Right. And so, like, I think we bring totally different backgrounds and but we're united in wanting to create a diverse environment because Elias, who, you know, it's now been three companies in 10 or 11 years, but that's halfway into my career before I, I worked with someone who looked like me halfway. And, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not from the, the middle of nowhere. You know, my first uh, few jobs mm -hmm. was were in New York City. They weren't in, you know, like uh, as diverse a place as you can imagine. Like, uh, and so, like, I'm not in the the backwaters of of of, of the countryside. So, um, so we bring different experiences because of that. You know, we believe it's important. We want to create a new type of environment, and because I think it's important, and I think you know, part of our personal reason for doing any of this is, which you know, we're totally aligned. Is we're trying to create role models. We're trying to find role models for the next generation. For the kids that are in high school, middle school, whatever, who haven't made a decision, who, you know, need role models because we know how important those things are. And Elias and I never had a role model that looked like us. Like we didn't have role models really, but like we didn't have role models definitely that looked like us. We didn't hear about them. But again, we grew up in a time before the internet, before Instagram, before, you know, LinkedIn, before, like now you can at least see it. Uh, I grew up in a world where I had never even seen one. Like, it was just like, you know, it could have been like, uh, it could have been like Bigfoot to me. Like, I, I knew, you know, maybe it existed. I don't know. I had never seen it. Mm. So, and you, and you touched on it. I was just looking at my notes there because you actually said, I don't know whether it's on the website or it's on a press release. It's somewhere, but uh, it's almost, I know that yourself and Elise want to be seen as role models for immigrants and people of color mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. tech, but it's again mentioned as well, quite well known. I think it's on, you've got a great page on your website around diversity and inclusion as well. But it talks about Drift being part of just 2% of VC-backed startups led by Latin ex-founders. Um, yeah, crazy. Tell me more about the work you're doing on that, I suppose, because I've seen I've seen you both doing it. I've seen Elias doing a lot of kind of, uh, of work. like a video series, I think it was called. Um, yeah. Can you just tell us, we just to share a wee bit more about that and I suppose why you're doing that, but stating the obvious, but why you would be doing that? Yeah, the, um, yeah, the, we spent a lot of time, a lot of work there, uh, a lot of energy. But, you know, Elias, if you go to the Drift YouTube uh, page, uh, there's a playlist, there's a series there called The American Dream that Elias is uh, host and and he's been doing this for a while now and it's interviews and different things that he's doing to uh, promote kind of Latinx you know uh, inclusion in tech and part of that work is not only those kind of videos but also uh, what we do and work with uh, you know nonprofits who focus in that area we hire people we spend a lot of time on the hiring standpoint trying to hire underrepresented people uh, into different roles a lot. I cannot tell you how much time is there. And that's the, you know, unfortunately, like we can talk about all this kind of stuff, but like that's where reality hits. That is reality. You know, people want to talk about, you know, and sometimes I get, I get, a lot, I get annoyed about it because people want to talk about initiatives and programs and this and that and that. And I'm just like, mm -hmm. but all of us are, you know, most of us are in situations where we're doing hiring each day. And my question is like, what are you doing there? Because you know what? To really do this, 
go back to the recruiting philosophy that we talked about. You got to go hunt. You got to go look in places. You got to look in corners. You got to look in places where you would not normally look to try to find and some of these candidates who aren't looking, who might not even know it's an opportunity. And you know what? What That's going to take you twice as long, three times as long, four times as long to fill a role, you know, like because you're doing that. So like, I don't want to talk about inclusion programs, this, that, whatever, if you're not doing that, if you're not doing the basics, because this stuff will, is feel good stuff that, that makes everyone feel good, but it's not going to change much until you actually go out and actually do the work. You know, most of the stuff that we're doing, we do a lot of this stuff and speaking and inspirational stuff and classes and all this kind of stuff. Most of the, the, the real stuff is the hard work every single day that never ends, that never stops, that never gets easier uh, to actually try to make to try to move the ball forward an inch every single day. And so that's that's really hard. It's not glamorous. It's not the part people want to talk about. But like that's reality. Like no, no, no program, no hashtag is going to going to solve any of this. Great message. I mean, how do you measure diversity, I suppose, and inclusivity at Drift? I mean, do you have, I'm assuming you will, but I mean, attraction goals, yeah. as you said, going out and actually trying to find these people. I mean, I'm assuming you've got attraction goals, hiring goals, retention goals. All of them. How do you help them succeed once, once oh, they're all public? Yeah, well? they're all public. <laughs> they, are, um, they are all public. They are, every employee sees them. We report on them. We goal on them. They are company level goals. They are the highest level goals that we have uh, as a company. So we report on on everything. We, we not do, only do it from you know, uh, backgrounds and, you know, those kind of numbers, but then we look at what are the pay gaps? What are the, you know, what are the, from, from an equity standpoint, like making things equitable, like what are the gaps there? What is seniority levels? Like we are, uh, I will tell you, cra- you know, crazy, crazy, crazy focus on this thing and it takes a lot of energy. And this, this energy we believe will create a better company, but, you know, it is the easiest thing not to focus on in the short term because you don't see the short-term results when you need to make, you know, when you need to make payroll, when you need to generate revenue, when you need to get new customers, like this stuff is long, 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 long-term bets that we believe is well or is, and we know it's well worth it, but like you will not see progression in the short term. Right. And it's, it's, so that can be unsatisfactory to some. Yeah. Cause I, I saw it on, again, I don't know if it was on that page I was talking about the diversity inclusion page, which is mm-hmm. a great page but mm-hmm. all these resource groups you've got, whether it's, I've wrote down here, like workforce groups or even inclusion groups or parental groups. Oh, yeah. Some of these things are, you've got about 10 or 12 of them and I thought they were they were brilliant. Now, I've only got a couple more questions, conscious of your time. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. 2020, I suppose, saw quite a dramatic year for a lot of things, not just um, COVID, but even things around the tragic death of George Floyd and everything mm-hmm. that happened. And I'm going to say America, I'm going to say America, but I think, just most of the news and you get to see is mm-hmm. clearly coming from America. Yeah. But a lot of companies at the time and a lot of people at the time said they were going to educate themselves, mm-hmm. listen more, and then take act, then take action. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's an open-ended question, but have you seen enough progress or action? Um, I don't even know how to answer that question. Yes <laughs> and no. I think, you know, like, I think it's part of what I was talking about earlier of just like, there's some important stuff that conversations that came out of important things, but the reality is like what behaviors, what habit changes get formed each day. And I think it's too early to, to know, at least for me, what habit changes have, you know, have happened because of, it, of any of that, um, any of those tragedies. 
uh, so far. I know a lot of initiatives. I know a lot of hashtags. I know a lot of those things, which is important from a visibility standpoint. But again, you know, like I'm pretty focused on the, the fact that those things are not going to not going to change much right, over the long term. They may make us feel good. They may uh, let us help release some of the anger and the rage, which is important, you know, in the in terms of healing. But like those things are not going to change much, right? It's going to take uh, it's going to take time. I you know, have this optimistic view of like, look, these changes that need to happen are multi are, are happening. They have happened. I've seen them in my life. I've seen massive changes happen in my lifetime, uh, but they are long-term multi-generational changes. Your, your kids, mm -hmm. your kids will live in a totally different world when it comes to this subject. Their kids will live in a totally different world. We will eventually get there, but you cannot, these things cannot happen overnight. Right. And it is a lot of ups and downs and it's a very long term view. But if you zoom out like you do in, in terms of looking at history, if you zoom out, you can see the amazing progress that we've made. We're making amazing progress and uh, and we cannot get too upset that the progress is not happening uh, fast enough because we're humans and humans don't evolve that quickly and our habits don't change that quickly. Like you have to take you have to understand that people are coming from different places and it's going to take a long time for these changes to happen. That's a great perspective. Mm -hmm. This is my very last question. I'm sorry, I'm rushing at the very end. Um, it's, it's a bit similar to what we talked about, but I want, it was VC funding. Um, I saw some stats from, from someone, I'm sure you know, who Rand Fishkin, um, the SEO Moz guy. Or, yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've known Rand forever. Uh, so he put up a post um, on Twitter and his stats came from Wired Magazine, I think Forbes, and it was about funding in, as I said, kind of Latinx founders, black founders, etc. And some of the stats were that in 2020, there was more money invested than ever, like 130 billion I've wrote down here, but there's fewer deal numbers, but actually there was a huge drop in funding for women founders, yeah. even less than 1% for black founders and even less for Latinx founders. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just curious, just your perspective on that in mm -hmm. general, and I know you're doing all the work on the Latin X side of things as well. Just yeah. what you, when you read those kind of stats, so what does what do you think about that, or where the problem is? Is it just a self perpetuating issue where it's typical white man's on a CEO and it just goes round in circles and circles? Or I'm just I'm just curious yeah. on your thoughts. I think it's related. You know, I'd say at a very high level, it's related to the where we started this conversation when we talked about digital first. It has to do that we are humans. And no matter how well-meaning we are, and I believe people are, are in this world, in the venture world, and I know many people in this world are very well-meaning, but we have familiarity bias. That's mm -hmm. what we have as humans. And so if we are only around certain communities and certain people, just like you were, when we were talking, you were saying, oh yeah, if, you know, the person in the office, you know, you get, you get to know them better. And like, that's the person you're naturally going to pick. Same thing with investing. Like, in this venture world, you're only around certain people, certain people that look like you. It doesn't matter if they're, you know, whatever they are. If you're, if you're me and I'm only around Latinx people and that's the only people that I see and I've never seen anyone else and I don't spend any time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be biased to, to invest in that community, right? And so um, it doesn't matter. I could be Martian. If I only spend time with Martians, I'm going to invest in Martians. It's, you have this bias. Like we cannot deny that this is true. And so the hard work is you got to, again, spend time. If you're really serious about this, it's not saying you're going to do this. It's not even setting targets around it. It's I'm going to spend, I'm going to do the hard work, just like in recruiting to spend time outside of the, my natural 
you know, echo chamber to meet mm-hmm. other people from diverse backgrounds. The more I meet those people, the more interactions I have, I'm going to find opportunity there. I'm going to build that, that same bias, but with a different group of people a more diverse set of people. And, and then that's how things are going to change over time. And I think, you know, from an investment standpoint, like, you know, people, we spend a lot of time there, Elias and I, we make a lot of investments and, and our friends, we have a lot of Latinx uh, founders that we've met throughout, throughout the journey at Drift. And, and we spend a lot of time together investing our own money um, in other Latinx founders and finding them and helping them get investment and do all that kind of stuff. But like, you know, I think part of me as well, because of the background that I grew up in is like, you can't let anything stop you, right? You, are you discriminating? Do you have less of a chance? Yes, 100%. There's no doubt about that. No one's making an argument about that. But, you know, like when people ask me, like, how did I do it? I was like, I didn't have any chance. I didn't have any choice, I should say. Any choice to, I didn't, like, I didn't even realize. I didn't, I, I didn't even think about it. I couldn't think about it. I put blinders on. I had to do it. I had to figure out a way to do it. Uh, did, was it fair or not fair? I don't know. Uh, I'm sure it was not fair. But like, but, but um, nothing was going to stop me, right? And so we have to have that determination that nothing's going to stop you. And that's the typical immigrant story, no matter what country you come from. The immigrant story is a very similar thing. They're going to persevere no matter what. They're going to outwork anyone. And they are going to, over the long run, maybe not in the short run, maybe not in their generation, but their kids' generation, they're going to progress and make progress. And your story, I know we're closing, but your story mm-hmm. really is, even for me, is super inspiring. Um, as I say, I've watched Drift. I only know you from Drift previously, so mm-hmm. growing over the last few years. So it's just been amazing to watch. Um, will we see a hyper growth in 2022, though, is my selfish question. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, can't announce it yet, but we have. I think we're going to have a hybrid. I think we're thinking of a hybrid, even though we're not hybrid at work, but we're thinking about doing some kind of in-person thing later this year if if things are safe big if uh but we're trying to plan for it because uh the community misses you know hyper growth uh, we miss it as well no it'd be great to see it um before you go then is there any way if anybody wants to learn more about you or keep in touch with you i know you do a great email every saturday which i look forward to reading anywhere somebody yeah. should go and learn more about you or keep in touch with you if they want to learn yeah. more. yeah uh, definitely i'm d d cancel d-c-a-n-c-e-l on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, all, all of the platforms. But, you know, I would say the thing that Robert mentioned, which is my newsletter, it's called The One Thing, comes out every week. Uh, and you can go to drift.com slash DC, drift.com DC, and subscribe to that newsletter. That's probably the best way to keep Great. in touch. Once again, as I said, I was told never to meet my, my heroes, but thank you very much for taking your time out to, to speak to me. It's been amazing. And yeah, look forward to keeping in touch with you. 